Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey everybody, this is your host Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. And today I'm joined by the founder of Zusk, Shayan Zadeh. Welcome to the show, Shayan. Thanks for having me. Zusk is an online dating app and website. Uh, it was started in the pre-Tinder, pre-Bumble era. Uh, the company went on to be used by tens of millions of users. It made over a billion in revenue and it was eventually acquired last year for $250 million. Um, I want to start off with you by talking about a topic that is not necessarily related to startups per se, but it is definitely relevant to, I think, a, a lot of the founders, and that's immigration. Uh, you are originally from Iran. When did you first come to the States? I migrated to states in uh, in 2000. Okay, and uh, immigration is never easy, right? Everybody has <laughs> that's, kind of that's their... an understatement. <laughs> that, that is definitely an understatement. I I'm originally from Ukraine. You're from Iran, and I feel like even though it's never easy for you, I would imagine it was probably especially difficult. Uh, the relationship between Iran and U.S. have been strained kind of throughout history. Uh, can you give us an idea of like what what was the what was your general experience of immigrating from Iran to the U.S. in the year 2000? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you're certainly right. Uh, the, the immigration in and of itself is not easy, and it just got more complicated by by the relationship between Iran and U.S. for for me. And it's it's the small things like not even having a U.S. embassy in Iran, right? So when you're applying for a visa in any country, you go to the embassy for the country you're trying to immigrate to. And you file an application, do the, go through the process. That's not an option for Iranians. So I had to travel um, to Turkey, uh, a neighboring country, uh, multiple times because you do the application and then you do the interview and there might be follow-ups. And this is at the time that I was uh, finishing uh, college, you know, on a tight budget, traveling internationally multiple times to get a student visa was definitely challenging. Um, and then on the flip side of that is because of the, the relationship between the two countries, the bar for getting a visa uh, at the time I was applying for a student visa was even uh, higher than it is for uh, for citizens of other countries. We, I had to wait, I think, about three months for, for example, for security clearance uh, after the visa was granted. And this is, you know, if you think about like the graduate school timeline, you file your applications for your universities, you get into the PhD program, you have a few months to start your program, and you're supposed to figure out your visa situation in this uh, short period of time. And my process had not only the international travel in the middle of it, but also uh, waiting for the security clearance and barely made it in time to, to come to U.S. and start my, uh, my studies at University of Maryland. So you came here as a grad student on a student visa. How did you go from a student visa to green card to citizenship? What, what was that process? Uh, very long <laughs> is the, the short answer of it. So uh, it was actually very interesting and it kind of dovetails into the conversation we are having around founders and entrepreneurship. Um, while at grad school, I fell in love with the notion of being able to create a product and create a company 
and bring your ideas to, to reality. And this was, I was still on a, on a student visa at the time, participated in business plan competitions, actually made it to the finals in one of them. The idea was based on the graduate thesis of my roommate and my, my friend that we ultimately started Zeus together many years later. Um, we even had interest from local venture capitalists to back the company. And then we get to the point that you want to start the company and the, the law system and the lawyers tell you, well, that's not possible. You're in a student visa. You can't do it. Uh, so that put a pause on my entrepreneurship journey. Uh, but I realized that that's where I want to take my career. And the next logical step for me was to um, figure out my immigration status through employment. So I, I dropped out of the PhD program, joined Microsoft, and applied for a green card uh, through Microsoft. Was micro, did Microsoft sponsor like an H-1B or something? Of Exactly. Microsoft sponsored an H-1B. And I don't know if you, if you know about the process. Uh, this was especially challenging in the early 2000s because the, the process of... Uh, you, you would get the H-1B, but from H-1B to, um, to a green card, there was a multi-year process to get approval from the Labor Department and then later on from uh, the, the precursor to... Uh, USCIS, I think it was called INS at the time. Um, mm -hmm. it, it was a multi-year process with quotas and waiting lists. Uh, so the, for the first three years that I was at Microsoft, they reapplied for my what they call the labor certificate, which is an important part of employment uh, immigration process for a green card uh, multiple times because the rules would change and they would scrap the application and they would start again and the clock would start again. Um, but, and I mean, it was just going through the legal steps and working with the council at, at Microsoft. And Microsoft was really, really supportive in this process. So it helped quite a bit to have a kind of a big company that has a lot of legal resources and able to help the employee base with this type of work. Um, ultimately, um, I got the, the approval for the labor certificate and the green card process went forward and i think i like actually got the green card uh in uh, in late 2007 which is when i started zeus so you went uh you came here on a student visa that was kind of the foot in the door then you got the h1b eventually green card uh that's one path right and there's many different paths for founders that are now outside of the u.s that may want to come to, to the States, to California, San Francisco, wherever, what are some other paths that they can take to, to immigrate? Uh, there are some programs now through organizations that, um, that allow founders to navigate this. Uh, I'm actually involved in, in one of the organizations, but there, there are a few of them that do this type of work. Uh, for example, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Global EIR Coalition, um, but that's one organization that I've been kind of uh, helping and fundraising a little bit for them uh, over the past number of years, uh, where you, uh, you come in as kind of like an EIR and work through a, a university to uh, start a company and then ultimately transition into the, into the um, entrepreneurship pathway under some sort of uh, 
immigration process. I know there are venture firms like Unshackled that also focus on the immigrant community specifically. So there are some options um, from that path. I mean, you, go, you can also be very lucky and win the diversity lottery um, or uh, get married to an American and come to US. I mean, there are many different options. <laughs> Do you think that, and I know that you and I are probably biased in this, but do you think that immigrants make good entrepreneurs, good founders? This is obviously going to be a generalization, but in general, do you think there's something about somebody that's been through the immigration process that uh, equips them with the necessary skill set uh, to, to make a good entrepreneur? I, I do think immigrants make better entrepreneurs, and I think it's two, two ways. One is the process that they go through uh, as an immigrant, and it's not just the legal process, right? Like coming to a completely new world that might be culturally different, that might be uh, physically different from what you're used to, uh, not having a big uh, support system in terms of family, and then figuring out how to fit in that world. I think that just takes, uh, um, teaches you skills or makes you more resilient, which is something that you really need to to have as an entrepreneur because you usually are going against well-established, much more resourceful uh, comp competitors. And uh, having done that in your personal life, I think is, is definitely a valuable asset in terms of uh, just pure practice and learnings that you've gotten. I think there's also the flip side of it, which is uh, there's a selection bias there. People who choose to immigrate, um, they are, by definition, more risk taker. Uh, they, they, they take action for a better life uh, more than the people who decide that, that they don't do that process, right? So if you take a sample of the population, a very small segment of that sample would be willing to even contemplate leaving their family behind and their birthplace behind to, for a better life and working harder and kind of compensating for a lot of things that they, they won't have. Yeah. Um, so I think from that, from both of those aspects, you end up with stats that you know show more than fifty percent of founders of successful startups in Silicon Valley or technology are are entrepreneurs or children of entrepreneurs. I mean, that kind of I think is a combination of both of those factors. There, uh, a stat that I saw recently, I think it's something like half uh, of all the top VC-backed companies in the country have at least one immigrant founder. And that's for like first-generation immigrants. If you take that to like second-generation, I wonder what those numbers are. There are, I know some firms and some funds that have been raised uh, with the main thesis of investing into founder, into immigrant founders only. So there, you know, I think, I, I don't know how they're doing, but I think there's definitely some logic behind this. Uh, you as an immigrant founder have obviously been very successful with Zusk. Uh, you started this company together with your co-founder, Alex, whom you have known since uh, since Iran. You guys met in school. Uh, you studied together and you came to the US together. You eventually started Zeus together. Uh, but when you guys were in grad school, uh, like you mentioned earlier on, you were in a point where you knew you wanted to start a company. It was just a matter of finding the right idea. Uh, how did you go about generating ideas and what sort of things were you looking for when you were deciding if this is a good idea or a bad idea? Yeah, I mean, this, this, was, uh, this was an ongoing uh, process. So there are a couple of... Uh, things that, that you look at as an entrepreneur, right? One, one is the kind of the competitive advantage that you might have to do a certain idea compared to the rest of the population. And then the second is the insight that you might have that others might be missing, right? And, and you're trying to kind of overlay those two dimensions and see what's the, what's the overlap and what's, 
what what is possible and what's interesting to you personally as well. I think those are like a number of different conditions that need to be satisfied. Um, for for me and Alex, when uh, when when my immigration was about to figure it out uh, at Microsoft, and I knew that the next step for me would be to start a company, he was uh, working at the time at NASA uh, in uh, in Silicon Valley as well, and we were just throwing ideas back and forth and 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 exploring what might be possible, prototyping some stuff. Um, and the ideas were wide ranging. I mean, some of them were like hardware products. I remember one particularly that we were looking at, would it make sense to design a remote controlled um, cat feeder, right? Like I was going and interviewing people who had cats at home and would leave and would want to communicate with them and maybe see them through video and, and speak. And this is, this is year 2007, so a lot of the technologies that we take for granted today that we turn on our phone and we FaceTime and uh, video is very native. That was not the case back then. So we were exploring ideas uh, in, fr across a wide spectrum and doing some market analysis and kind of figuring out what made sense and what would we be interested in, in pursuing. And we went through that process for about about a year and settled on on one idea which was the the start of the company that became Zeus but it was not it was not online dating or it wasn't even called Zeus at the time and what was this initial concept so this was if i take you back to that time this was when myspace was king of the world and uh, facebook was just starting to open to non-university students so social media was very nascent um and the the insight or the thesis that we had was consumers are going to spend more and more time on these social networking platforms. Uh, businesses want to know what's the sentiment of consumers, what do they think about certain things, kind of think focus grouping. Mm -hmm. uh, and today they do it by phone or physically. How can we bring that and make it kind of accessible and democratized and cheaper and faster, leveraging the, the volume of attention? Uh, that consumers spending in terms of time and attention on on the social networking platforms, and it was called uh, collection, which was basically a widget that would distribute um, kind of focus group like uh, questionnaires to consumers through the medium of social uh, social networking sites. And this this was one of the this was the period of your life where you guys were exploring different ideas. So what was it about this idea in particular that made you guys uh, like laser focus on it? Was it, was it, did you guys end up getting some traction or like what, what happened that made you choose this idea? Even though this wasn't that final kind of idea that you exited with it, pivoted into Zuzka dating platform, but what was, this in, what was it about this initial concept that made you guys choose it? Yeah, I mean, you usually ask the questions, you know, why now, why me, why this, right? So the why now is clear. I mean, we saw, the wave of social networking um, before it was as big as it ultimately ended up being. Right? So uh, that was a key insight that consumers are going to spend a lot more time on these websites compared to, uh, you know, traditionally watching TV or, uh, or reading uh, newspapers or what have you. So, uh, so that's that's definitely an insight that was that was true, and uh, it. it bore out and and uh, we had picked up on it early enough um, we also 
both had a background in, in data mining and analysis. So mm-hmm. the, the idea of, you know, looking at massive number of votes across the spectrum from consumers and overlaying it on census data and being able to do cool analytics with it was just personally appealing. You know, there's always that notion that uh, even if you're not your own customer, you should, you should love the type of the work that goes into building that product in some capacity to see you through the decades of hard work that it will require. So that was, from a personal point of view, appealing. Uh, the competition existed outside social networking. It was a sizable market. If you look at focus grouping, Nielsen's of the world. Um, but there was nobody that's, that was doing it the way we thought should be done at that time through uh, leveraging social networks and virality and things of that nature. So these were all like positive signs. Um, that, that we saw and we felt like we could build a prototype and test it out and see how it does. On the topic of ideas and picking ideas and evaluating them, uh, in one of your interviews, and I maybe it was Alex uh, was the one that said, but either you and Alex, one of you mentioned that uh, it's important for founders at the idea stage uh, to not be emotionally attached to any particular idea, meaning to never fall in love with any certain concept. And I think there's you know there's a human tendency to uh, to have a connection to something that's your own, like an idea, uh, where so essentially the 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 learning here is that you should be objective. If an idea is bad, it's bad. Forget about it. Doesn't matter that it's yours. Move on. Pick, pick a new one. But on another hand, founders are told that they should be passionate and they should never quit and they should be perseverant. Uh, so where do you draw this line between being too emotionally attached to an idea to a point where you're chasing something that's a lost cause versus uh, giving up too soon, not being passionate enough, not being persevering enough? Uh, it, it's it's a great question, and and finding that balance is is easier said than done. Um, there is there are a lot of people that uh, you know um, ultimately go down with the idea that they're married to it in their mind and and never move on from it and and spend years uh, pursuing it and it doesn't pan out. And you never hear about those, or very rarely hear because it didn't turn out to be something. Uh, positive or uh, or uh, or big, so all those stories, a lot of those stories go untold. You hear a lot more about the ones that uh, if if somebody persevered and and ultimately the market caught up with them, that becomes a very compelling story. And humans love stories, right? So we love triumph stories. So you hear about those more often, and it kind of feeds on that idea of never give up and never. Um, uh, never let the, the idea down, even if you fail for a long period of time. I, in my mind, I mean, looking back today, I think we pivoted Zeusk to Zeusk a lot later than we should have. And it was because we had an emotional attachment in our mind and we didn't see clearly what the market was telling us. Uh, years later, I, I think I wrote, uh, I read a quote by, I think it's uh, by Charlie Munger. It says, uh, in a, an average management team in a great market would do okay, but even the best management teams in a terrible business model or market would fail. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. So um, when do you decide to abandon an idea? I think that's not clear, but it should be in, in weeks and months, not years, in my opinion. If you're not getting a positive response from the market, once you have the product that you think should work, um, and you're pursuing it and you're tweaking it and it's a year or two after you started and you're actually doing a lot of 
exploration and learning from your failures and still not responding, I mean, I think you're moving on too late. And why did you guys end up pivoting to a dating site? So you mentioned you started off as a uh, a market research tool. Uh, how did this morph into a dating platform? So we, we rolled out the market research tool product. We actually raised the seed round, small seed round, uh, based on that concept. Uh, and uh, we were even monetizing the idea. Uh, it was small dollars, you know, like, couple of dollars a day here and there from some businesses that would just throw random money around experimenting. But uh, for us at the time, I was like, oh my God, this is great. It's going to work. Um, but the challenge that we were having was customer acquisition wasn't working. The idea for consumers wasn't exciting enough. Businesses loved it. They were like, yes, if you can get me attention of 100 uh, people in this demographics and have them answer this question, it's fantastic but the consumers weren't interested because it was not appealing to them. Um, and uh, one of the ways that we were kind of trying to fix that problem was to build compelling experiences on the social networks that then would lead some of the portion of those people that engage with those experiences, whether it's a game or a quiz or something of that nature, to fill out a questionnaire for, for a business survey. Um, and that was our kind of distribution strategy by building these cooler experiences that consumers would engage with. Um, and one of those had a dating feel to it. It wasn't even a full-on dating product. Uh, but this kind of distribution hack or whatever you want to call it grew to be orders of magnitude larger than, than the collection user base or engagement that we were getting. And the reason I said we, we pivoted later than we should have for months we were looking at the growth rate of this dating experience and we were feeling good about it in the context that it will help us make this market research product successful whereas if i had known what i know today we would immediately stop working on market research and go after this untapped opportunity that we had stumbled upon uh, exploring what we can do on social networks and really double down on dating sooner than we did. And what was the competitor landscape like at that time? This is what end of uh, like 2008, I guess, 2009. What, what were the popular dating sites platforms at that time and how were you guys different? Yeah, so the, the bigger names on, on the web were basically Match and eHarmony in the US. Uh, uh, Multi-decade old brands that that were massive from a scale point of view. They were advertising on any TV channel that you watch. So they were everywhere, but they weren't on social networks because it was a brand new uh, kind of medium in terms of uh, engagement and consumer attention. Uh, when we launched uh, Zeus as a dating product in um, late 2008, uh, there were a few other dating plays on on facebook and, and other social networks as well uh they were just getting started uh i don't even remember some of their names but uh if you looked on facebook for example for dating in, in their app directory there would be like three or four different names and we were one of those uh match any harmony were nowhere to be found in that list so we, we took advantage of that vacuum and that opportunity to really grow to a sizable user base um, very quickly, even though from a feature point of view, we were very poor compared to what Match.com, for example, was offering. 
but because there was this vacuum uh, of, of good experiences where consumers were spending their time, you were able to, to grow the, the customer base. And with dating, the customer base, like the size of the profile database is one of the key elements of the success of the product because it's a hyper-local good. So in every city, you need to have a sizable number of people uh, and across both genders and across age ranges so that the next user that joins actually has a meaningful experience. They can meet people that you'll be interested in, uh, in getting to know and go on dates with. Uh, so this was a great opportunity for us to kind of solve the cold start problem for, for a hyper-local network good uh, in a time that consumers were starting to spend a lot of time on these platforms, but our, the, the bigger, more established players were, uh, were ignoring that. Were you and your co-founder, Alex, were you guys uh, like co-CEOs? Were you both CEOs? We started as co-CEOs and then later on, a few years into uh, the business, we, uh, we changed it to CEO and president. What, uh, what was the decision for having two CEOs? We felt that when we started that uh, we are like two sides of the same brain and it just didn't make sense to, to break it apart and, uh, and have two different roles. Uh, for us, and pretty much every decision that we made was uh, was done um, kind of with, with the two of us, every major decision that we were making. So it felt like the right uh, way of going about it. Later on, when the business grew, it just became a little bit harder to to have the externally for it to work because people weren't sure who they should go to or when we would talk to investors, they, they didn't know if they should send information to both of us to one of us and we just simplified it uh for everybody and i took on the ceo role and alex took on the president role uh i mean in i think internally for the two of us and how we work it made no difference mm-hmm. uh but i think having a clearer kind of distinction of where should people go whether internal or externally for for the for the decisions that they wanted to be made it made that structure more clear and easier to to manage a lot of uh, startups are started by really young people, like people in their 20s, early 20s. And uh, when you're talking about people in their early 20s, they're in the early days uh, of their careers, right? So these are not people that have been, like if you, if you have somebody that's starting, two people that are starting a company that are like in the middle of their career, one has been a decade in marketing, the other has been coding for afterlife, the split is, is pretty obvious. One is going to be responsible for the business side, the other is going to be responsible for coding. But when you have two people that are just in the beginning of their career, there's no clear uh, specialization of what these people are going to be working on. And I think with younger people and, and in general, maybe people that are starting companies overall, uh, these are ambitious people. So what do you, what sort of advice would you give to founders that are starting a company, maybe with their friends, and there is a tendency for multiple people to want to be CEO? Yeah, I think really think about what, uh, so individuals are, are good in different ways, right? And, and, and a different task. And this is not necessarily specialization in terms of skills. Uh, to give you a very simple example, uh, I'm a morning person. Alex is not a morning person. So he is very productive late at night, uh, which, which is fine if you're being, doing solo creative stuff, right? But if, you, if it's hard for you to, to be at the 9 a.m. meeting when four people are waiting on it and decisions need to be made, it makes running that business more challenging. So these are like simple things where uh, 
you can look at yourself and see where where your strengths and and weaknesses lie or what approaches work best for you uh, for example as a ceo you need to be selling constantly right that like you're selling to your customers you're selling to your future investors you're selling to your current investors you're selling to prospective hires you're selling different things right ideas concepts business uh, career opportunities and ultimately a product but it means that you should have you should enjoy selling if you hate you know presenting uh, a concept or or a product over and over eight hours a day uh, then you probably wouldn't want to be a ceo even if you're ambitious part of your brain says that I want to have the CEO title. So I think it's, it's a, a series of uh, different decisions that needs to be made and, and evaluated. But you're right, it's, it's hard and uh, people are driven. And if it's not a clear distinction, then uh, I see a lot of people doing what we did, is just punt the, punt the question and say, well, let's both be CEOs. I haven't seen three co-CEOs yet, but uh, many two co-CEOs. And I've seen a lot of them stay that way and, and it works out. And I've seen a lot of them transition and that works out. Um, so, um, you know, depending on the personalities. I think S S Salesforce. Yeah. Salesforce is a good example of that, right? I, I don't, I'm not sure if there's still two CEOs now, but uh, there were for, for quite a while. Obviously, I mean, this sort of setup has worked out for you guys. Uh, in 2014, uh, you decided to go public. So you filed your S1 with the goal of raising 100 million. Uh, what was the decision behind uh, wanting to go public? So this was, uh, I mean, you, you got to put it in the, in the context of like doing a public offering really goes uh, in the context of where the where the financial markets are. Uh, obviously, as a venture-backed company, ultimately your investors want to have an exit, uh, and that exit either comes as a public offering or it comes as an M&A opportunity that some other company comes and buys your company. Uh, in, in dating, uh, the, the number of uh, corporate buyers is not is not a large quantity. It's not like there are 2,000 companies that would need a dating division under their company. So you're from an M&A point of view, you're looking at maybe a total of five, six different destinations if somebody was to buy your company. And, and when you put the size on it, right, like the size that we had gotten, it would be like two or three companies that could even pull an M&A for Zuskov. So from our investor's point of view, the public offering um, was basically the, the, the default path, if you will. And, and that's how we ran the business from, from the early days. Our, our site was on, on a public offering. Um, and, and we came very, uh, very close to it. As you mentioned, we filed in 2014. Uh, we wanted to raise that capital to continue to grow and, and challenge uh, Match.com for, for the number one uh, property. But the, the company, so year 2014, uh, you guys are doing almost 200 million in revenue, uh, and this is a 60% increase over previous year. So you have a company that is making a lot of money, it's growing, it's almost profitable, you guys reduced your re reduced the loss that you guys were having by quite a bit that year. Uh, but the IPO eventually was not, it, it didn't go through. What, what was the reason behind canceling the IPO? It, it really came down to 
what the public markets were bearing. So it was very interesting. Yeah, you mentioned some of these stats, like the growth rates that we had and, uh, and uh, unit economics uh, when you look at the core of the business and everything else that goes with it. So two companies went public right before us, uh, Care.com and Angie's List. Mm-hmm. And they both, uh, when you talk about a subscription consumer business, from, from a public market's point of view, whether you're you know, selling dating or selling uh, in terms of care.com, for example, the, the service of finding a, a nanny or care, caretaker for your elderly families or something of that nature, it's, it's not as relevant as much as the kind of the core of the business. Okay, it's consumer, it's subscription. It has this amount of churn and it's growing at this rate and it's making this much per unit in terms of unit economics. So uh, we were basically looked at as three, four companies that were in different spaces, but doing from a business model point of view, similar things. And those two IPOs that went before us didn't do very well after the fact. So mm-hmm. uh, really the markets mood changed from growth at any cost was what they were paying for to oh no all of a sudden profitability uh is is more important and these are swings that public markets go through all the time um but at the time when we were still on the path to to that launch uh the the response and the the multiples that the market was giving these comparable companies was making it very hard for for our public offering to be successful at evaluation that, that uh, us ourselves as well as our investors would be happy with. So uh, we decided to, to cancel the IPO and revisit it uh, when the time was right or look again at m opportunities down the road. That's a crazy thing about uh, having a successful company is that there's so, so many things have to go right uh, for 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 the exit to be successful and when you when you're talking about going public you are now subject to market forces and uh if you guys like timing is a huge thing when it goes to when it comes to uh exiting whether it's an ipo or it's an acquisition if you guys have filed uh the s1 a year or two prior i think the kind of the, the story would have ended uh maybe differently but in any case you guys you and alex have had eventually a successful exit you zusk was acquired for 200 million in 2019 uh which brings us to now uh what do you have going on now quite a few things so um i i do uh run and operate a digital health company uh called leap rail the focus there is to use artificial intelligence to help operating rooms uh run more efficiently uh, that's a three-year or so venture uh, deployed at uh, a number of hospitals around the country and, uh, and helping doctors and, uh, and hospital administrators every day to be more efficient with their resources. More recently, uh, I teamed up again with Alex and a few other people to acquire a, a 60-year-old women's clothing retail brand uh, called Dressborn. Um, from uh from its uh from its owner last year uh and really change the business model and make it 100 percent e-commerce instead of e-commerce and and brick and mortar and uh that's where these days i spend a lot of my time making sure that that transition goes well and uh and this new venture is successful 
So when you started Zusk, this was 2007, uh, and it was right in the beginning of the last big recession that we had. Uh, and now we're in the middle of a recession and you're running a company again. <laughs> uh, how do you feel? Do you feel that you're much you're more prepared now that you've been through the recession before? Uh, or is it something that maybe you can't really prepare for? This, I mean, black swans are hard to prepare for. Uh, they are different in many ways, but they are the same in, in certain aspects too. So if you historically look at it, uh, a lot of successful ventures have started, or even investments have started uh, when a recession hits or is about to hit. And uh, there are a few reasons for it. Uh, one, obviously, the people who survive starting at that time have something special, whether it's the, the company, the product, the people themselves that persevere through that. So again, a, a selection bias there. Uh, but also the access to certain things are a lot easier, right? When, uh, when things are going well for everybody in the economy, labor is harder to find. Quality people all have cushy jobs and being well-paid, so they don't, they're not willing to take a risk on a young company. Uh, cost of just raw materials is, is higher now in the context of dress barn. Uh, you know, with, with a lot of retailers ha having uh, struggling because they've been forced to shut down, all of a sudden the cost of the products that we buy has come down and we are able to be more aggressive and acquire products as lower price and, and, uh, and give our customers a, a compelling value proposition. So all of those things kind of help you, uh, but also certain things are much harder, right? So. Um, access to capital might get harder. Uh, people are scared to invest. And uh, even if they see a good, good business, they might be hesitant. We went through this with Zeus in the, in the height of the 2008 collapse. We were out fundraising and we are pitching to the VCs. And I knew under the phone, they're checking their portfolio value dropping by 30%. And somebody is not in a mood to write a new check when <laughs> what they own got slashed you know, significantly that, that same morning. So. Uh, you know, it, it, it throws curveballs at you, but um, like we talked about in the beginning, entrepreneurs, just like immigrants, have to figure out to, to do with what, what hand they're dealt with and turn it into a competitive advantage one way or another. I know that this is going to be a speculation, but how different do you think this recession is going to be versus the last one? Uh, this, is, this is very, I mean, this is unprecedented, right? I mean, the global economy global everything shutting down for extended periods of time abruptly is something that has never happened uh, in, in the history of mankind. So uh, there will definitely be many differences. I mean, everybody was hoping for a V-shaped recovery. I'm not certain that's going to actually happen. Stock market is looking good uh, in terms of recovery, but I think that's because of the federal kind of uh, intervention amount of money that you printed into the market is unprecedented so uh, i don't think that tells the full story of what businesses are going through in terms of earnings and how much damage this is going to do to a lot of these businesses a lot of them might not recover and come back i mean i'm in retail now and i know many retailers are going to go through bankruptcy and these are trends that would have happened anyways i mean some of these retailers would have gone bankrupt but it might have taken five years now it's going to happen in six six months. So um, 
it, this is a very, very unique situation, I think. But but we are now entering a new world, and and I don't think this new reality is going to go away anytime soon, if ever. For the record, uh, today is May 13th, 2020. I'm not sure when this is going to air, uh, but when this does air, I think the situation might be different because things are changing very rapidly and it feels like a decade worth of changes happening in, in a month's time. Uh, Cheyenne, thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.